1: This episode is kindly sponsored by Wren Clean Skincare. Now, it's not always easy to find skincare brands that tick the right boxes without compromising on efficacy but this is where Ren really come through. All of their products are cruelty-free and they're on track to be zero waste by the end of 2021 by using recycled, recyclable or reusable materials. I'm going to tell you about a few of my favourite products, but you should know that it was extremely hard for me to just choose two. I'm in love with their Ready Steady Glow Daily AHA Tonic, which I use each morning as a toner after cleansing. I find it really brightens and energises my complexion without leaving that feeling of tightness or dryness and the product i use for the final step of my morning skincare routine is their best-selling clean screen mattifying mineral spf 30 this offers uva uvb and blue light protection both of these products are vegan cruelty free and made from recycled plastic stay tuned as i'll be sharing lots more about ren in the coming months and be sure to head over to their instagram at ren skincare to learn more about their zero waste pledge as they are the first premium beauty brand to meet this goal and welcome back to All The Small Things with me, Venetia. In this episode, I'm joined by award-winning journalist, digital editorial expert, three-time author, mental health ambassador, and badass powerlifter, Poorna Bell. This month sees the release of her fantastic new book, Stronger, changing everything I knew about women's strength. Part memoir, part manifesto, this book starts a conversation about women's strength and fitness, tapping into the reservoir of mental strength we each have in a way that has absolutely nothing to do with weight loss. This book is a refreshing, intersectional and necessary interrogation of the health and fitness industry, as well as the government's role when it comes to mental health. I absolutely loved it. Needless to say it was a real joy to spend some time with Porna. She is super intelligent, inspiring and has a cracking energy about her, so I really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did recording it. So Porna, thank you so much for joining me today on all the small things. Let us start as we always do. I would love to hear about whether or not you have some kind of morning routine. I do indeed have a morning
0: routine but it's um it's not i know some people have like very elaborate you know very rigid routines so i kind of operate on an 80 20 percentage which is i don't always get it right but um, depending on what's happening with my day, I usually get up um, anywhere between, I think, maybe 7 to 8.30. And um, if I feel, for example, that I really need the sleep, then I won't set an, an alarm. And I'm not really the type of person to sleep in till, you know, midday or one o'clock. So I know my body will naturally get up by 8.30. Um but over lockdown, uh, this is something I can't believe that has actually stuck is that I will do about 10 to 15 minutes of yoga um, in the morning, which has been amazing. And I did it just before we've recorded this. And then after yoga, I'll potter around, um, maybe sort of see if you know any of my plants have uh, passed into the afterlife, if they're all doing okay. <laughs> And then I will usually make myself breakfast. At the moment, because I'm uh, weight training a lot, I'm have i I'm a bit more, um, uh, my routine in the morning about when I need to eat breakfast by is a little bit more um, fixed than it would do normally. So yeah, so I usually will have breakfast and then kind of just uh, get down to it and and get on with my day.
1: Lovely. I'd love to hear about where training fits into your schedule as well. Because I've seen your, on your Instagram stories, you have a whole set up in your kitchen is it at the moment <laughs> uh yeah it's
0: um the the equipment will be thankfully going to my parents the minute that gym op gyms open up and i am i'm very glad that i got the equipment but um but yeah it's all sorts it's out in the garden which i'm sure my neighbors uh, i must be very popular with them for that um, and it's also in my kitchen <laughs> amazing
1: and what how often are you training at the moment and 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 at what kind mm. of time of times of the day or does it really vary um it uh, well if i've got a
0: program or a rough idea of what i'm training towards usually um it is a bit more fixed and i am really not a morning workout person i know that some people swear by it have never been. So um, I only work in the morning, work out in the morning if it's desperation due to my schedule. But otherwise, the ideal time for me will be after work, um, because then I don't have to worry about, you know, rushing things. But I will sometimes do a lunchtime session, um, depending on when my because I I train with my um, with my PT and my coach once or twice a week. Um, So it will be fixed times of the day, it will be about three times a week we're doing at the moment and maybe when gyms open because I've been sort of rebuilding my strength from just not really having anything and and not being very well last year so it's three times a week at the moment but as of next week I'm hoping to get it up to about maybe four times.
1: It's just so awesome and inspiring. I I absolutely love it. And also after reading your book, which we talked more about later, for the first time in a long time, I was like, oh, I really want to go and lift some (laughs) weights." I'm yet to do that, but I feel hopeful that I will at some point this year. Thank Um, you. I'd love to I'd love to wind back the clocks a little bit. Um, I really, really loved how when asked to name three women who most inspire you for a recent Instagram post, two of them with your mother and sister. And I also loved reading about your relationship with your dad in your book. Um, please, can you tell me a little bit about your childhood and family life when you were young? We had
0: an unusual family life compared to a lot of people, let's say, if I'm, I don't know, my colleagues or, you know, people I went to school with, in the sense that I was born and and brought up in England, but when I was about seven years old, my parents made the decision that we were going to move back to India, which is where, you know, uh, the rest of my family are from and where they're from, and my older sister Priya was already out there. And she was staying with our grandparents. So we had this um, period of, of five years of living out there um, and having a very different sense of identity, you know, and, and also a different appreciation of, of things that people are discussing a lot about now in terms of, you know, things like not wasting food and sustainability and so on, because it's, it's just a very different experience over there. Um, and also just being surrounded by our cousins and, you know, it was it was wonderful. Um, we came back when I was around 12 and that coming into secondary school as a child that had lived in India was a very, again, it, that was quite a shock. And it wasn't as benign as the experience of moving over to India because you're kind of going from a place where you are the majority into a place where you are very much the minority and especially the area that we lived in which was um you know a small uh, town in kent and i would say that for the most part of it um there is a lot that that if you read my books that you will see that comes through around figuring out what your identity is like, because, you know, I'm not my experience. I might call myself, let's say, British Asian, but my experiences aren't the same as other British Asians that have only ever lived here in the UK. But having said that, my actual family, um, I'm very lucky to have them. We're not perfect. I mean, no one's no one's family is perfect, but generally the three of them are very funny people they are very intelligent people um and my mother and my sister especially and i don't think i really appreciated this when i was a teenager possibly growing up um in, in the suburbs is that having two very strong female brown role models like that was really fundamental to the person that i think i am today and we don't we haven't had the same path in life you know I haven't had the same path in life as my sister um but the idea that you do what's right you stick up for people who can't maybe stick up for themselves and you take the harder decision even if it's maybe not the, the most popular decision or um, other people can't see the thinking as to why you've taken you made that choice. But you know that you've made that choice, and having the that that sort of faith in yourself that hopefully you know you know uh, why you're making that choice and sticking and staying true to it, that's something that I think very much so comes from them. And and trying not to care what other people, as long as you're not hurting anyone or you're not uh, upsetting anyone, trying not to care what other people think about your choices is also something I've gotten from them.
1: I definitely can relate that to what I've read in your latest book as well. You come at strength and fitness when you write about it from a very intersectional perspective. And it feels like you're always thinking about folks who aren't so included, aren't so represented. So yeah, that that really shines through in your writing. I would love to hear about how fitness played a role in your life growing up and what kind of activities you enjoyed.
0: When I was a kid, I mean, I'm talking about younger than, you know, maybe uh, 11, 10, 11. My approach to it was that there was literally nothing that I could not do. The the idea of not doing something because uh, boys did it or, you know, I was scared of it. That was just something that I remember not even popping into my head. You know, either I enjoyed it or I didn't enjoy it. And if I didn't enjoy it, then I didn't continue with it. But it was very much... um, you know, playing with kids in the neighborhood, running around, cycling, um, playing tennis. So I'd go for tennis lessons. And the reason why I really got into tennis was because I grew up during a time where you had these incredible female personalities like Steffi Graf and Martina Navratilova, who were pro athletes. But um, the, the their prominence, let's say, at the time meant that you also then had, you know, uh, tennis kicks providers actually make things for girls and for women which when you're a girl like the 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 colors of things that you use the equipment and so on it sounds so simple but that's it's actually the color of a tennis racket that made me want to play tennis and um and so, yeah, and I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed being active. I had a climbing frame in the back, in the back garden and would, you know, pretend to be an Olympic uh, gymnast. gymnast. Uh, I have no skill in that department whatsoever, by the way. But it was just, I just remember it being fun. And then when I was a teenager at school, it just turned into the diametric opposite of that. You know, it was not fun. It was embarrassing. You had to wear Uh, uniform like sports uniform that was really embarrassing that made you hyper aware of your body and you were taught how to move your body either in like really competitive ways which and you may not be a competitive sports person in terms of playing in terms of teams but also the way that you were taught sport I don't think was particularly nurturing and I don't think it was done in a way that actually encompassed everyone's varying abilities of how you play sport. And um, so for me, it's it's kind of like a two sides of the same coin in that one side was amazing up until a certain point, And then it flipped over and it just became something that I just wanted absolutely nothing to do with. Like the concept of doing a physical activity as an extracurricular or for fun on a weekend when I was a teenager was absolutely unthinkable.
1: Mm, you had quite a life altering you've had a full life and you've had you had quite a, a life altering moment age 31 with your heart and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that and how it impacted your relationship with your own physical fitness and your own view of of your health and fitness yeah
0: so when I was 31 I my relationship with the gym at that point in time is I'd go maybe two or three times a week and I'd kind of um, potter around the machines, you know, like the treadmill or the cross trainer or whatever. And then one day I just couldn't catch my breath. And I just thought, oh, maybe I'm, you know, uh, push myself too hard, even though I really wasn't pushing myself too hard. And I couldn't catch my breath the next day or the day after that if I exerted myself, you know, slightly in any way. And My dad, who is a retired doctor, he basically said, well, you know, you need to go to A&E and get it checked out. And I was really, really irritated with him about it. But that basically led to a diagnosis um, that I had a hole in the heart, which was just such a shock because, you know, a a hole in the heart for people that don't know is a congenital um, disease, an illness, and it means that you've had it from birth. And my mum, we always knew, you know, she was the one that had this hole in the heart. She had, um, she was very sickly as a child. She had this whole operation, open heart surgery when she was a teenager. And when I thought back and I looked back, you know, I had been relatively active as a kid. And I think in my 20s, I did things like I went kayaking and I went on this um, hill walk in the Himalayas and all of this stuff. And it, it just seemed inconceivable. But you, there was the truth right you know it was like a it wasn't even a small hole it was about an inch across and i would say that that sequence of events from being told that this is what happened to going to have an echocardiogram which is where you kind of hear your heart for the first time that will always always stay in my mind because until that point th- we have these ideas around you know what our body should look like what it should be and and very often we have a very detached, what well, I did anyway, had a very detached relationship with my body. So on the one hand, it's this concept of you know it needs to be like as small and as slim as possible, and uh, I, and I know that there's this one body type that you're just put it's pushed down your throat through media of of what it should look like and what's deemed attractive. And then you have this other part, which is where you just drive it into the ground, like you drive it into the ground with not sleeping enough, um, working really long hours, not paying attention to it when it's kind of grumbling and telling you that things are not right. And it wasn't until I actually heard it, that I realized we're one and the same thing. And our body communicates to us all the time, Venetia, like it does. But I was surprised when I looked at it in retrospect and I thought of the number of times that I ignored the communication that was happening with it because my brain just has this different you know perspective and doesn't deem certain things important and so on and we have a society that praises um, being able to subsist on as little sleep as possible and so on. I know we're getting better in terms of self-care and all of that but by and large, you know, if you can make the most with the with the least you've got in terms of your body's capabilities, that's considered to be an achievement. And it's just nuts when you think about it. So that really, for me, was the start of understanding that um, my body is something to be taken care of. It's not something to be bullied or punished or pushed in a particular box or whatever. And I need to take care of it because it's not a given that it will always operate the way that I expect it to.
1: Mm. I, I read in an interview that you said that this moment was a, was the start of a new love affair with your body. And I just thought that was such a amazing way of looking at it and an, an incredible outcome. And I think just touching on what you said, the way that women burn themselves out and burn themselves to the ground in a multitude of ways is probably a result of the patriarchy and Feeling like we have to compete with men in order to be successful. I had a guest on a couple of weeks ago called Uju Asika. She structures her life in times in terms of rhythms, which I just think is so beautiful because it allows us to pay attention to our cycles. It allows us to pay attention to the seasons. And have you found that since kind of connecting back to your body, you're much more aware of those kind of things?
0: Yeah, I listened to that episode with Uju actually, and I I loved it. I I, I mean, I love her. She's she's incredible. And I think that, yeah, because we, I mean, the thing is living in a in a seasonal way or living in a way where you know that there is a natural flow to things. I, I mean, I think that innately you can feel when you are pushing against something that's a closed door and it's just not going to happen for you for, for whatever reason in that point in time. And then at the opposite end of that, there is a natural flow of the way that things the direction that things kind of want to go or you want things to go and maybe you don't understand the um the process behind that but i have definitely learned over time that leaning into that flow um is much more peaceful it's it yields the results that i that i want and that is the result of a lot of personal work of learning how to let go of certain things and learning to recognize the signs of when to lean into something but It really depends on what I'm doing and where things are going and and what I feel like doing. But the minute I feel like I'm undertaking something, whether that is strength training, whether that is a work project, and I feel like I'm doing it because I have to, but I cannot actually trace the origin of that have to back to a specific thing, you know, a specific uh, reason then that makes me look at, well, why do I feel that I have to do that? Where is that expectation coming from? Am I following through with something because I think that that's what other people want me to do? Or because it was an expectation that I set myself years ago, which doesn't really apply to my life at the moment. And I love, I mean, I love that idea um, of of living seasonally. It's also why I'm really strict with my social calendar and I don't book things in. It really, (laughs) people don't love it, but like, (laughs) in normal let's say non-COVID times and even actually during COVID times you know I don't book anything into my social calendar that is more than two weeks away unless that person let's say has a kid that they need to organize babysitting for or it's a special occasion or whatever because I don't know where my life is going I don't know health-wise what I'm going to be like in two weeks time and I used to find myself doing that all the time like booking out weekends and months and whatever living in a very kind of future forward way and not in a present way at all and I did not like it one bit
1: Mm, that's really really powerful (laughs) thank you for sharing that
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards.
1: Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is kindly sponsored by Papier. Papier offers a bespoke collection of customizable stationery created in collaboration with artists, tastemakers, and brands. They use sustainably sourced FSC certified papers. Whether you're perking yourself up with a new planner or looking for a set of thank you cards, Papier will have the design for you. I absolutely love using the site as a way to personalise birthday cards for my friends and family. You can upload your favourite photos to make cards feel extra special. I'm also a big fan of their wellness journals as a way to note down any reflections and musings about things like my meditation and my water intake and my sleep. All the small things listeners can get 15% off their first order. Just enter the code VENETIA15 at checkout. Thanks very much to Papier. You lost your husband when you were 34. He had been struggling with depression and addiction to opiates and very sadly took his own life. I've heard you talk about this on podcasts and in interviews and it just must have been such a difficult and traumatic time. Only seven years later, people are talking far more about mental health, and the conversation has really come a long way when it comes to men. What changes would you like to see over the next decade when it comes to mental health in the UK? The biggest change
0: I would say when it comes to mental health is um, is funding of services you know there th- it has been amazing to see in the last six years that this piece of education that we have in society around um mental illness and and just doing things that actually feed into good mental health, even getting people to understand mental health as a concept, right, that like everyone has mental health. So there are so many practices and behaviors that we each have that chip away at that mental health, and that will sustain that. And even getting that awareness has been a huge undertaking. And I do think that we are at a point where it is i find it as it is less of a taboo for people to mention it in conversations i mean i'm just using my own friends and family as a as a example of this right like whereas you know 6 years ago um after i just lost rob it was just not there like the the vocabulary to have those types of conversations weren't there and when he was alive and he we were dealing um with his depression and you know and everything that that entailed from from medical treatment to talking about it amongst ourselves and so on and I couldn't really talk about it to my friends and family because they would have had it's not because they don't love me or they weren't supportive and didn't love him, but they just had no idea about it, and they had no sense of what you know it actually meant and what it actually was. but we are reaching this point where. Uh, yes, there are some amazing organizations, right, that have been leading this conversation. Um, one of them is Calm, the campaign um, against living miserably, for which I'm an ambassador, you know, Bryony Gordon's got mental health mates and so on. But now now the heavier lifting needs to be done by the government. And, and there is a huge, um, not case to be made. I mean, we all know this, that you can tell people to go and get help, but what happens when they go and get help and very often we're hearing stories of people that have had to wait for you know months if not years to actually access treatment and that's just not an acceptable system like if you consider the last time I checked the stats you know if you consider that like all illness out of all illness 28% of that can be attributed to mental illness um in terms of like the facilities and the treatments that actually are there to treat 28% of of that type of illness it's not there um so that that for me is is a huge thing because you know it's okay to talk is great um you know removing stigma is great it will only get you so far and also you know this is a uh, a thing that people who have had to deal with like serious mental illness as as Rob had and other other sort of people you know Hannah Jane Parkinson who is an amazing writer for the Guardian has spoken about this is that whole it's okay to talk etc cetera, etc cetera, blah 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 is uh people people want to um, only take it so far, but when it comes to actual mental illness like people get scared and they don't know what to do, to do and how to deal with it. So there has to be an acknowledgement like I think World Mental Health day had this really wishy-washy message of mental health for all. It's like but it's not mental health for all you know that messaging covers a, a significant percentage of the population sure. But it doesn't cover the people who, you know, need serious treatment in that. So that is something for me that absolutely has to shift and change.
1: It's almost as if some mental health issues are more palatable than others. And especially in how businesses and corporations and marketeers have created mental health products to help us feel better. And I'm, you know, not exempt from that. I buy into them, I promote them. Perhaps, and maybe you could share a little bit more about the palatability of certain mental health issues compared to others.
0: Yeah, so Blue Monday, which is like the bane of my life, which is the third Monday of January or something like that. You have all of these brands who are going, hey, here's something to cheer you up on Blue Monday. Uh, There's 20% off this pair of jogging bottoms. (laughs) you could get. And I'm like, Oh, my God, like, can you imagine that is, that is the inanity that their mental health message has been distilled down into. And okay, let's say if you are looking at mental health, as a spectrum, you know, everyone has mental health, not everyone has mental illness. Um, Somewhere in the middle, you've got mental distress, which we are all susceptible to and prone to, which can be, you know, driven by so many things from a breakup to losing your job and so on. But at the other end of that spectrum, like 20% of jogging bottoms is not gonna cut it, but also there is a really unpalatable thing of brands And certain influencers sometimes like who have never spoken about mental health, who have never, you know, the other 363 slash four days of the year will never talk about it. But they'll talk about it on this day because it's it's co-opting a certain worthiness about the message. Right. And 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 for me, I'm just like, okay. Let's just say you're a brand that has decided to just put that kind of messaging out there. I can guarantee you that they have no other commitment to mental health in any other area of their business, in any other area of their lives. Probably not their own employees, right? It's not something that's and, – and this is the thing. I think when it comes to mental health, it's like it's not enough about mes- messaging will only get you so far. It's about how do, how do you as an organization – Embody this as an ethos because you fundamentally understand that if you don't take care of people's mental health that they are not going to be happy they are not going to be sustainable and that actually this entire conversation isn't like a nice to have it's about the sustainability of the human race like really when you think about it it's about helping people to live um as long as possible and as happily as possible and most of these companies, it wouldn't even occur to them that they have to take their messaging and they're thinking, you know, that far.
1: Mm. Yeah, I bet that they're not. Well, you imagine that they're not, you know, checking in with their employees, putting in systems to make sure that their employees feel OK in every part of the business. And, yeah, I'm sick and tired of seeing brands <laughs> co-opt movements and International Women's Day and Earth Day oh, yeah. and all of it. Once yeah. you see it, you just can't. It's just everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, let us talk about your incredible new book, Stronger, Changing Everything I Knew About Women's Strength. In the book, you talk about your frustrations when fitness is treated as a cure-all for mental health issues. Um, why is nuance so important when it comes to treating mental health? And I was thinking perhaps we could talk about the example of COVID and gyms closing. Yeah, I mean, it's, see, this is such an interesting
0: one for me because, you know, um, not to make things too political, but please make it too political. Something... I'm all about. That. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so, so last year, exactly uh, this time last year, when we were just about to go into lockdown, and um, you know the the mention of how important it was to for people to be able to go outside because it's really important for our mental health, you know and when bojo i mean sorry boris when he um mentioned this i was thinking oh this is interesting matey i mean it's it's very interesting that you seem to be uh really on it about like access to parks uh, and our mental health when actually uh your funding is a joke in terms of like you being you helping the nhs in terms of mental health services and, I, and again it's like a kind of um you know it that's his version of like 20% off jogging bottoms right where he's mentioning it because he knows that it's an emotive topic and it will it will you know make people think that he cares and he does not care like trust me the the state of that they have left the NHS in around um, mental health funding and services it's not a, it's not a government that cares it's a government that wields that term to make it seem like they care and and I just don't think that they do I think that they've just got different priorities and then when it came um to gyms and gyms um being closed and you you know look I am a massive gym goer um it I totally see how uh gyms are not just it's not just about physical movement um it's about community it's about being surrounded by like-minded people and definitely the type of gym i go to which is described more as a as a sort of a grassroots community gym i know that whenever i go to the gym i will see at least one of my mates in there and and so from like a community mitigating loneliness point of view it yeah it's a it was a massive blow it's a massive deal but then that conversation started to get co-opted in terms of um and and I am very pro gym and I do think that they should have been prioritized, um, you know, in terms of like helping them to stay open. Um, But then that got co-opted in, well, you have to keep gyms open for mental health. And I just thought, again, no, like, mental health is something that um, you can go to gyms you can frame it as in like gyms are where we go for mental well-being the book that i wrote i ran a survey alongside it above and beyond i think this was like more than like 60 70 percent of of women said that one of the reasons why they like um, exercising is to maintain their mental health and so i 100 percent agree with that But it's about maintenance. That's about well-being. That's about feeding into the bucket of things that mentally keep you grounded and stable. That is not the place you go to if you have a mental health problem. That is not the place you go to in lieu of seeking help for your depression or your bipolar or whatever it might be or your anxiety, right? And that's where those messages, it's kind of like similar to nutrition where those messages just get oversimplified and then they just kind of Turn into hashtags and they turn into these very clunky headlines. And then that ends up, number one, really upsetting people who actually are dealing with serious mental health situations and are seeing things like, you know, going outside for walks and the gym being presented as the solution because when you are really ill so like let's say you're really ill with depression you have to contend with that a lot with people saying to you hey why don't you just go out for a walk you might feel better which is absolute nonsense when it comes to treating conditions like that and and it can be part of it it can be part of like um going for a walk can be part of like your mental health maintenance but it's not going to be the solution it's not going to be the fix to it and that is where that kind of talk and that kind of messaging without nuance can be really problematic because also if you're saying things like such and such a place is really important for mental health personally I feel that yet again that um, you know that kind of excuses the government from actually playing the role and yet again pushing the onus on people and communities and charities and other organizations to do the
1: work that they should really be doing yeah, it's gotta be top down. It has to be top mm. down. I think it's really interesting what you talk about um in the book and I've I, I also read you talk about it in a piece of a stylist, how you say that When you started weightlifting, an automatic response would be like, Well, don't get too muscly. You don't want to get too big. I love this quote from your book, and I'm going to read it to you. All of us have been subjected to diet culture, and by extension, that message that physical activity is about weight loss. It is a belief that is really, really hard to root out, but it must be. Never doubt why we are made to feel like our bodies are the enemy. It is done to keep us from realizing our strength. What do you think is standing in the way of? Of women realizing their physical power?
0: It's a theme that runs through the entire book, which is pointing out where power is has been and is being taken away from, from women to diminish them at, at every point. And there are some amazing people on Instagram um, who talk about this. you know. So Talia Rai is like one of my absolute favorites. Um, Michelle Ellman, Scarred Not Scared, in terms of pointing out the 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 strings that diet culture is is pulling on you and laura thomas as well um in terms of intuitive eating and you know looking at diet culture and and laura thomas is amazing about that as well any kind of modern woman knows exists in the world in terms of gender inequality so we all know that women don't get paid the same as men most of us know that despite gender roles changing and You know, men evolving and whatnot. Women—these are statistics. You know, women above and beyond still do more of the domestic labor. You know, it's why, for example, COVID has affected women more than it has men because of that whole pressure cooker. If you have kids, which is that you have to work and you're also taking on the the bulk of labor when it comes to your kids. It doesn't mean that men aren't aren't good dads or that they're not helping out in that situation but we have still some ways to go before that balance redresses itself right and we're aware of those inequalities like we know those inequalities exist we we now hopefully should know about the uh inequalities around intersectionality um the inequalities facing black women for example um compared to other women. Uh, So we know about the inequalities within our own gender, but there are blind spots for us. So for example, a big blind spot, which was really important for me to point out, and one that I had only realized in the last like two to three years, um, is that sure, you know, I know that diet culture exists, I know that the, the goal is to basically keep women as um obedient and subjugated and that's why you know physicality matters in terms of trying to keep us as small as possible but i didn't realize that it was something that i had never questioned so for example uh, this is the 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 one that i love using which is that if you told me that um oh you know what there's that um there's a work meeting happening but um but it's like mostly um you know, it's mostly men, so you you won't be able to go in there because, you know, women aren't allowed or whatever. I would absolutely lose my rag and just go completely and say that that's unacceptable, that's not right, blah, 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 whatever. Yet it was a mentality I had. I'm not blaming myself for this because this is social conditioning that I had when it came to the weight section in the gym, where I had just not even questioned the principle that men have we, you know operating to the principle that somehow men have like more ownership in that space like they they have the right they belong in that space more than I do because I'm a woman and I hadn't realized that that was actually a thought process um I'd had and I, look there are things that go on in that section that make it a very unwelcoming space for women when you talk about like let's say mainstream gyms so it's not something we're just imagining and gyms are such high hyper-gendered spaces, right? Um, but I realized that I had not only believed that men belonged in that section more than me, but I had upheld it by not going in that section and, and being too scared to try anything. And also the belief around getting bigger. Like when I started weight training, so I took up weight training about a year after Rob passed away because I wanted to get physically stronger. This is when I was just weight training, not really powerlifting. And there came a point with my the trainer that I had back then where I was at a crossroads of do I do I want to lift more weight? And if I wanted to lift more weight, I actually needed to put on more muscle and more body mass. And I was scared of it because I didn't want to get bigger. And so I said, no, okay, I don't want to get bigger. So, again, it's like pointing out a blind spot of why did I think that was okay? Like, why did I think that me being small was a more important goal than me being strong? And that was a real... <laughs> Uh, light bulb moment for me.
1: That's a lot of unlearning for us to do. Yeah. A lot of unlearning. You wrote an entire chapter about the menopause in your book, which I just think is so important. And I am someone who definitely hasn't read enough about the menopause, doesn't talk about it kind of ever with my friends, um, and has only had a couple of conversations with my own mother about it which I intend to rectify why do you think so many women feel really fearful of this time what can be done to shift that and also why did you think it was so important to write about it
0: I thought it was really important to write about number one because in on the social media platforms that I run there is a community of women particularly in their 50s who are really into their fitness um, who are very passionate in terms of talking about it um, and who want to raise awareness uh, of what fitness is like during that that time, how the menopause impacts it. Um, and it seemed to me that there needed to be space held for that. Also, when I was then forced to confront my own feelings towards menopause, I was just like, it, you you almost kind of veer away from it. You don't want to know about it because either it's this really scary prospect. Um, or you just think it's not really relevant for you and you'll deal with it when it actually happens. And firstly, it's really important to um, to hold space for for women who are going through the menopause, who are approaching it, who might be, you know, perimenopausal as well, because then it's getting better now. But there isn't actually that much visibility around um you know, really kind of like strong, inspirational um, role models from, from you know, around that age. Um, and, and exercise and fitness is something that can help women feel more empowered at that age. But also, like they, once you kind of turn 50, you then get lumped into this massive group of what they call older women. So like, you know, the, the sort of the group goes from like 50 to like, let's say 65. If you are someone who are in your 60s, it's or even 65 it's a different proposition to being 50 so um so again that that also feels like an erasure of identity because you're you're talking about women who don't who are 50 who aren't remotely engaged with being you know 65 if i ask you to think about your age in like 15 years it probably feels very foreign to you and and you you can't really relate to that yet um so that was something that seemed important to point out but also as with anything in the world, you know, if you are ignorant about something, if you don't know anything about, um, so like, let's say, if you consider something like menopause, you fill in the gaps with what you learn from society anyway. And society does not depict menopause women in a a good way or a kind way. You know, if you think about it, that the stereotype is someone who is quite hysterical, who's very flustered. And that is yet another way of, of disempowering women because um because you know yeah uh, why why would you listen to a woman who quote marks is being governed by her hormones you can't take her seriously and can you imagine being a human being who is not taken seriously like who is not listened to it is it is one of the most destabilizing things and then you as a woman are existing in society that erases you uh, anyway, and tells you that you are, you are not all of the things that you've lived your entire life by. So I thought it was really important to highlight that there are some women that are kind of sticking up a middle finger to this and saying, no, this is not me. And actually I'm going to do life my way, but also learning about the menopause. Don't get me wrong. I know that it is going to be, it's a challenging period because it is a, it's a transition and any type of transition like that, you know, is, is, um, is can be difficult to adjust to. But I also feel so much better prepared. And I think if we are better prepared for what happens, or what can happen, it becomes something that by the time it happens, you're not then just like completely overwhelmed and overloaded with information, like you, you've you known this information now for a number of years. So when there are symptoms happening to you, um, which is a very common story that there are like symptoms that have happened to women that they have like had no uh, forewarning that this is what's actually going on. It's sometimes taken women like years to actually figure out what's going on, uh, and there's um, sort of surveys done of you know them going to their doctors and their doctors not necessarily being particularly sharp on like picking up on what's going on. That's why I think it's something that everyone should learn and know about. Otherwise, we just end up creating these like caricature versions of what actually happens, and I don't think it really helps anyone. <laughs>
1: would you feel about doing a quickfire round sure okay quickfire with porn breakfast lunch or dinner oh dinner tea or coffee tea walking or running walking tennis or rock climbing tennis twitter or instagram instagram fiction or non-fiction fiction dressing up or dressing down Dressing up, trainers or heels, trainers. Weightlifting or powerlifting, powerlifting. Cheese or wine, can I have both? Yes. <laughs> Netflix or podcasts, Netflix. In the trees or by the sea, by the sea. Routine or spontaneity, oh, routine. And finally, early bird or night owl, early bird. That was quick fire. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Is there something that you have read, listened to, or watched recently that you can't stop thinking about, loved, or would recommend?
0: Yes. So I have finished a fiction book. It is Luster by Raven Leilani, and it has already been shortlisted and nominated for so many different awards. The way that she writes is just so beautiful, and I I keep turning, you know, the the way like certain sentences over and over in my mind and I just I think about it you know every every kind of couple of days it will just pop up in my head and I'm just um it's one of the most surprising when I say surprising it's just her style is so unique and I haven't read anything that fresh and that beautiful in a really really long time
1: wow I can't wait to read it I'll add it Mm. to my list add it to the show notes what is your one non-negotiable daily self-care habit
0: Ooh, um, okay. The one non-negotiable has to be um, doing some form of movement. And that could literally be doing like an online dance class, walking. Um, it might be training, but it's something that involves moving around.
1: Lovely. If you could advise listeners to do or try one small thing today to feel better about their strength and their physical ability, what would it be?
0: What I would say to people is if you can spend like five maybe 10 minutes of writing a list of things that you have achieved in your life that required a lot of strength that maybe were quite challenging. It doesn't have to be anything to do with physical activity, but it's a time when you thought you maybe couldn't do something and you could do it. Every single person has that list of things that they accomplished and that they did when they thought that they couldn't do it. And that is the little seed, the little spark that you kind of take And so when you then go into something like strength training, when you think you couldn't possibly do it, and then you kind of take that little spark of courage and then you just try it. And if it's not for you, it's not for you, but you might enjoy it. Who
1: knows? Amazing. Thank you. And finally, what is one thing you hope your older self and your future self will have achieved?
0: The one thing I want my older self to have achieved is to just feel completely liberated and liberated from expectations, liberated from the things weighing me down currently, you know, in terms of like worrying about things like success and so on. And I want my older self to use that liberation to just basically do anything and to never ever feel like age is a factor for why she shouldn't do something or she shouldn't try something because one of the women I profiled in the book is an 80 year old who basically strings up a washing line in her back garden and she uses it to practice hurdles and she's not a unicorn there are lots of other women like her that do all kinds of like crazy stuff like that and that is the kind of person that I want to be like
1: I'm sure you will be Pauline. thank you so <laughs> much this has just been such a pleasure thank you Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, then please do leave a five-star review on iTunes. That really helps me get the word of the podcast out there. And you can always take a screenshot of the podcast and share it on your Instagram stories, tagging me at Venetia Lamanna and tagging the podcast at ATST Podcast. Or you can just share a link to the show direct to a friend, just copy and paste. Thank you so much for being here and I'll see you soon.